Okay, turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. We're going to look at uh, 18 verses. But before we get that, do that, I, wanna, I, I, need to, I need to get a running start here so you know what we're, what we're talking about here. And let me pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the blessings that you have afforded us in our lives. And I think most of all, just in um, my recent venture following you, Lord, what sticks out to me a lot is not just what I learned, but the people along the way, and especially the people in this room. Thank you for friendships. Thank you for deep community. Thank you for support. And we all need that. We all need that. We're all in need of support. We all need a cloud of witnesses, Lord, to cheer us on or to tell us to go right and not go left or to pick us up when we fall down and dust us off keep us going, get us going again. Lord, we need that. And I'm thankful that we have that here, that this church is so loving, so welcoming, so supportive, so loyal, and so committed to each other and committed to you. What a, what a blessing. Lord, thank you for the riches that are here in this expression of your, of your followers. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today. Lord, as we, Lord, I... Uh, I want to look to you. It's all for you and to you. So, Lord, would you reveal yourself, your glory and your majesty to us through this passage? And would you be with me? Help me to um, follow my own notes on this computer and all of those other things so that I can just be faithful to guide us through. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a look at the human heart this morning because it's been on my, my mind a lot. Um, and I want to take a look at the human heart from a theological perspective, from a biblical perspective, um, because the Bible actually has a lot to say about your heart. The Bible has a lot to say about what makes you function. It has a lot to say with, about what your heart is made for. It has a lot to say about how your heart operates, how the human heart operates. Um, it has a lot to say about your heart's tendency to go astray. And my heart's tendency to go astray. Did you know that? Our hearts have a natural tendency to go astray. Oh, it's that song that we love to sing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever had an experience where at night you feel so close to the Lord and you feel like, man, I, I've never felt so loving and so, so close to you before. And then you wake up the next morning and you feel so far like your, your heart got cold overnight while you were sleeping. <laughs> We've got this tendency to forget things that we should remember and remember things that we ought to forget. The Bible has a lot to say about, and, but the good news is the Bible has a lot to say about God's relentless pursuit of your heart, which is so beautiful. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we love the Bible. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word heart, the word leb in Hebrew, it appears 850 times throughout the Old Testament. Um, and very little, very rarely, in fact, I couldn't even, last night I was trying to find one, I couldn't even find a reference to where it's talking about the heart anatomically. It's not talking, most of the time, I can't say none of the time because I just couldn't find it, but I can say very rarely is the heart talking about, or is the Bible talking about the heart in terms of um, anatomy, 
uh, in terms of what's functioning there. Instead, it's referring mostly to your most inner self. Your most inner self. The deepest part of you. Okay? It's the deepest level of a person and it registers the most profound responses to life. You are responding to life the way you are because of the deepness of who you are, the, de- the depth of the human heart, okay? In fact, it is so deep that 1 Samuel chapter 16 tells us, by the way, we will go back to Samuel, I promise. Um, anyways, but 1 Samuel 16 tells us that only God can fully know the heart. That's how deep and complex you are. You're not gonna, you don't fully know yourself. You do know yourself, but not fully. God knows you even more fully than you know yourself. There's a deep water there, the the depths of which you have not quite plumbed yet, and yet it's there. Um, The heart is the source of a person's deepest desires and wishes. According to Genesis 6-5 and Psalm 14 and Psalm 21 and those places, the heart is the source of your deepest desires and wishes. It's the source of it. It's also the source, by the way, according to Exodus chapter 7, your heart is the source of all your decisions. Did you know that? It's the source of your volition, your will. Why do you have principles that make you decide a certain, what's your character all about? That's what the the Old Testament would refer to as the heart. Um, In the Old Testament, the heart is the center of the intellectual and rational functions that we we typically talk about when we talk about the mind. In fact, I'll just say this, uh, the distinction between head and heart in the Old Testament does not exist. You need to know that. In the Old Testament, there is no distinction. It's a completely foreign idea to distinguish between the head and the heart. And let me give you an example. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It's the same thing. Yeah, Kristen. Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man or as a woman thinks in their heart, so they are. In sum, the heart is the focus of the inner life. It's what the, it's what the Bible is targeting the most. It's the focus of the inner life. It's of the reasoning, responding, the deciding self. Everything flows from this center. It's the deepest center of the human person. Um, it's the driving force of your life. It's what makes you do what you do. It's what motivates you. It's how you prioritize. It's why certain things are important and certain things are not important. The most fundamental values from which uh, your actions and your attitude flow are from the beliefs and the way you think in your heart. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it springs the issues of life. Keep your heart. Protect it, nourish it, curate it, garden it, keep it, tend it, maintain it, steward your heart above everything else, because from your character, from your soul, from your heart, 
comes out the issues of your life. Whether you pay your bills on time, whether you show up to a meeting on time, whether you tell the truth or you lie, all of those things flow from how you've been curating your soul and your your heart, okay? In our time and place, in our culture, the term follow your heart is a Disney favorite. (laughs) You know, following your soul, being who who you, that's the maxim that we live by. In fact, if there is a sin in our culture, the greatest of those, if there are sins, the greatest of, the, of those sins in our culture is not being true to yourself. In other words, not following your heart. It's where a lot of our, um, our very sensitive topics right now, our controversial topics hinge on this. How can you stop someone from being who they are? Following their heart. It's this mantra. But the Bible also goes on to say that the heart... Even though it's all those things, it's infected by something that makes it go astray, that makes it untrustworthy. In fact, let me, let, me, let me ask you this. This would be a shock to our culture. What if getting our heart's deepest desires was now the worst thing that could ever happen to you? What if getting your heart's desires was now the worst thing that could ever happen to you. My son's deepest, deepest desire right now is to spend every waking moment playing Minecraft. Minecraft. It's a game that he's into on the computer. What if me saying yes to that was the worst thing that could happen to him? Right? You see what I'm saying? Or... There's those that have curated a sweet tooth. We tend to think some people have sweet tooths, some people don't. Well, the reality is you actually form this. You, you've trained yourself to, to this way, see? And so what if giving yourself that, those sweets or eating those carbs or doing those things, what your heart wants, what you think you deserve, what if giving yourself that was actually the worst thing, or let me get, let me, uh, let, me um, let me let Paul say it. Here's what Paul says. This is in Romans chapter one, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the, desin- to the sinful desires in their hearts. The Greek word cardio, right? To sexual impurity, for the degradings of their own bodies with one another. Okay. Why would the greatest punishment imaginable for someone be to give them what they want? That's what Paul is saying. The greatest judgment. Uh, has anybody ever read Dante's Inferno? Okay. That's okay. I won't, well, I'll spoil one part. In Dante's, he, he envisions seven layers or circles of hell and on this tour on this journey through hell you run into some characters some Shakespearean characters that you know very well you run into Romeo and Juliet and in hell you know what they are in hell in Dante they're conjoined twins they are literally stuck and fused to each other and they are miserable they're fighting 
and they can't get away from each other. And you hear what he's saying. His point is, hell is getting what you want. Remember, Romeo and Juliet, they couldn't live without each other. And God says, okay, fine, in, in Dante. Okay, fine, you get what you want. And now they can't get away from each other. They're infused together, and they, they're fighting, and they can't. And that is what it is. That's kind of what is being said here. God gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. What if God were to say, fine, fine. In fact, in this very same chapter, Paul sums up the problem with the human race in one sentence. In Romans 1.25, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for, this is the problem with everything. If you can understand the sentence, you can go out there and look at the world aright. You can actually look in the mirror and look in your own heart aright. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator. Let me read it again. It's, it's a real big key. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped. When we're talking about worship, we're talking about heart language. It's, it's assigning ultimate value to something. That's what worship is. It's what you put all your value in. It's what you lean all your weight on. It's what drives you. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Heart language here. Here's, the, here's principle number one about the human heart. If you're taking notes, if you want to learn about it, what the Bible says, the human heart must live for something. Number one, principle number one, humans were made for meaning. You cannot get away from it. A human being without meaning is a human being that's not breathing. It's nihilism, except there is no really, not really any true nihilism unless you're put in an insane asylum. It's a life that's meaningless. Humans were made for nihilism. What? Insane asylum. You lose your mind. If, you, if, if humans don't have meaning, they lose their humanity. They lose themselves. They lose, they lose their ability to function. Something must and will capture our heart's most fundamental allegiance and loyalty. Something has already. So think right now in this room. Something has captured your deepest, most fundamental allegiance and loyalty. You are loyal to something or someone, and whoever that or whatever that thing is, is your true God, is your true Lord. See? And if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that God himself was, was, is, can only give... It will eventually fail to deliver and will break your heart. And I mean that in the biblical sense. Will break you in your character. Yeah, I'll say it again. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break your heart. It will break your character, your inner self. It will warp you. Okay, again, let me read it again. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do, this is another translation, flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. This is what Jesus was getting at. Let me get into the New Testament. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 15 when he said, out of the heart comes your thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, that would be lying, slander. These are what defile a person, he says. Out of the heart, why do you think, when your mind is at a neutral position, where does it go? That's because of a fascination with your heart. We sing that song that's beautiful and yet convicting at the same time. In the morning when I lift my eyes, let my first thought be of you. In the evening when I close my eyes, let my last thought be of you. If only that we could, we're, that's what we're shooting for, isn't it? But who can honestly sing that song saying, that's, I'm there. Maybe once in a while we've gotten there. But we are so distracted. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, called our hearts idol factories. He said our hearts make idols out of, he said our hearts can make an idol out of a doorknob. Okay. The Bible is filled with story after story of the devastating effects of idol worship. In fact, um, there's two brilliant Jewish scholars that have said that the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. They said, if you want to know what the Bible is all about, it's about the rejection of idolatry. And idolatry is a heart issue. It's guarding your heart. Okay? You can think of it very much like um, what we eat. Be careful what you ingest, what you put in. You know, parents, we're very diligent to make sure our, our children are eating things, or at least we ought to be, very diligent to make sure that our children are not ingesting something that will harm them. We want to put things in that will help them grow strong and healthy and think better and grow. It's the same thing with our own hearts when it comes to spirituality. In other words, this is what the whole Bible's about, according to our Jewish scholarly friends. It's about our heart's relentless tendency to turn everything and anything into an idol. That is something that's going on, a dynamic that I would bet the biblical farm is going on in every single heart in this room, including mine, including mine. Even that picture that they just showed of me, to define myself based on my degree is a struggle. I have to constantly say, no, I'm defined on Jesus and his grace, not on the things that I've achieved or accomplished. But man, that's something that I have to constantly put back on the altar, constantly, because my heart has this tendency to do that. Think of our children. Think of where we're from. I'm from here. I'm a west sider. Oh, you're from the east side? Oh. On and on it goes. It can even go into denominations. Oh, I define myself because I'm a Baptist. Or I define myself because I'm whatever it might be. Our hearts have this tendency to do that. They do. 100%. And the Bible has a powerful narrative about every, what we could call, counterfeit God that tends to grip the human heart and what that tells us about our hearts. Whether it's love, money, success, or power, there is something deeper and legitimate about our hearts, that, something that our hearts really do need. Now, let me give you a great definition of idolatry. I can't remember where, I've, where I read this, but it just jumped out of the page at me. And let me see if I can remember it, because I didn't write it down either. Idolatry is fulfilling an, let me see, idolatry is fulfilling a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Oh, I love that. 
Idolatry is fulfilling a legitimate need, a need of the heart, in an illegitimate way. And that means a few things about idolatry. That means that the things that we want are something that we actually do need. So because our hearts have to live for something, our hearts can and will turn anything into something to worship. Good, even good things. Good things and good people. To understand everything that we're going to say, let me just categorize some things about idols because I want you to see that idols in the Bible is actually a pretty complex thing. Um, in the Bible, there are, well, let me categorize two kinds of idolatry for you. There are what we call surface idols or what we will call, we'll all call surface idols. And then there's what we can call deeper idols. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives. Okay? That's what sin does to our hearts. So they, be, they become idolatrous deep idols. Our motivational good drives become idolatrous deep idols. So even our basic God-given good drives, the ones that come with just, just with being a human being, they've been polluted or, per, or pervaded by sin and turned into idols. So for example, some people are strongly motivated by a desire um, to influence to have power, while others are more excited about the approval and appreciation of others. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else, while still others, they want security and control over their environment more than anything else. People with a deep idol for power, for example, they don't mind being unpopular. They don't mind get being criticized as long as it gives them the power that they desire, Okay? Other people, people who are most motivated by approval and, uh, um, are just the opposite. They will gladly concede power and control so that everyone thinks well of them. Two different motivational drives. What's that? So everyone will love them and approve of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or love, or control, or something like that, and our, our deep idols, um, each deep Bible generates a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Every deep idol, power, love, whatever it is, fear, has a, deeper, a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Surface idols are things such as money, spouses, children, and our deep idols seek fulfillment through surface idols. Our deep idols seek fulfillment through surface idols. So I want to feel accepted. What is that? That's a deep idol, right? I want to feel accepted. So I'm going to get a degree. Surface idol. See? I want to feel loved and okay. So I'm going to make sure that my spouse and I are all right, even if it's not, I'll say sorry, even when I didn't do anything wrong. So, so there's a, I'm getting a deep idol fulfilled through a surface idol. I want to feel, um, I want to feel like, a, like, I want my child to love me. I want to feel loved by my child. 
You're using your child to, feel, to fill this, this need. So you can see how complex this is in the Bible. Money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more funda- uh, uh, fundamental impulses like security and control. Some people want money, for example, as a way to control their life. Those are usually the people that will not spend any of it. Right? It's about control. So they'll, they'll, they'll keep it. They'll keep it safely saved away and invested. Others want money for access to social circles or to make themselves feel beautiful or attractive. And those people do tend to spend their money. Why? Why is that? Because there's different, deeper idols that they're using surface idols to scratch that itch in different ways. Uh, Let me put it this way. Two people, let's say, let's just make this up. Two people um, in the same week, they both um, got they, they were dating somebody and they both, both suffered a breakup and both lost their jobs in the same week. One is devastated about the breakup and the other is devastated about the job. One could care less about the breakup and is more devastated about losing security. The other one could care less about the job and is more devastated about losing the, the, their, their lover. What's the difference? The heart. The deep idols of the heart. See what I'm saying? This is why idols can't be dealt with by simply eliminating surface things. Someone just the other day to me said, what's your take on gambling? And what they're saying is, is there a rule that says it's wrong or it's right? And the answer is a little bit more complex than what they would want. It depends on, what that, it depends on what's going on in that person's heart. See, Like I, for one, could walk into a place and play it like a game and then walk away and never think of it again. That's just, it's just not something that really, that re- I don't think about it. I don't, I don't struggle with it. Other people, they cannot stop. See, they cannot stop. So, a perfect example for this. This is where we get into our text. We can put it up there now. This is Genesis chapter 22, And you know this story well. Let me read it to you. Sometime later, do we have it up there? Oh, I have it up there. (laughs) I'm like, Isaiah, don't just sit there and drink your coffee. Throw it up there. Okay, never mind. I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah, I apologize. Forgive me. Okay, I'll read it to you. Or you can turn it into your Bibles or however you want to do it. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham... Or when he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Okay, parents, think this one through here. Imagine what this, let me read it again and put your parent cap on. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. What language are we talking about there? It's heart language, right? Isaac, and go to the region of, of Moriah. Moriah, I'm in Tolkien world, sorry. Um, I just went to the Lord of the Rings. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough, enough wood, 
for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here while the don- with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This is verse 9, if you're following along. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And this is verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You trusted me and you obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Okay. What a, this is obviously a very, very remarkable ancient story. Um, according to the Bible, God came to Abraham and offered him a staggering promise in Genesis chapter 12. He said, if you will obey me faithfully, obedience is heart language. You're going to obey what you worship. What you, you are obeying what you deem the most important in your life. Okay? If you will obey me faithfully, God would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's descendants. That was the big, big promise of which we're partaking of today. Okay? But this promise required Abraham to leave everything that he was familiar with. You remember? Uh, here's the quote. Leave your country. This is God speaking to Abraham. Leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. Leave it all. Leave everything. Leave. We're not talking about just a location, although it was that. We're talking about all that's in a location that a heart clings to. And the longer you stay in a place, your roots grow into that place. Family, support, 
friendships, all of those things. So to follow God, Abraham had to leave all of his friends, his family, everything that made him feel safe, everything his culture was saying to live for, everything that meant prosperity for him, all of these things, not just place, but culture, and go to an uncertain destination. He didn't know where he was going. He just had to go and follow. He was asked to give up For God's sake, nearly all the worldly hopes and everything that a human heart could possibly desire, and he did it. He did it. This is why Abraham's one of the greats. He did it, right? He left it all for God. But he wouldn't just lose everything. According to the promise, he also gained some things. Did you hear the promise? The prophecy said that the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring. So God doesn't just ask him to lose. God asks him to lose in order to gain. That's really important, by the way, if God ever asks you to lose something, it's always to lose it in order to gain. In other words, you know, this is cross-resurrection stuff. In order to have life, you've got to die. In order to be raised and have the vitality and energy and and affect and, and feeling of life that you need... You've got to die to yourself. This is, this is all the way through. Same thing here. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had been unable to conceive up to this point. Um, biologically speaking, having children probably seemed, seemed impossible for them at this point. And the promise wasn't fulfilled right away, was it? It didn't happen right away. Years turned into decades And they were not able to have children. And the more years that went by, the more difficult and the more difficult it was to believe. The more difficult it was to to put their faith in it. I think any probably any couple struggling with infertility has felt this feeling. As the time goes by, as more and more time goes by, it's 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 like the grit and the hope kind of starts to slip through. This is where Abraham's at and, and Sarah. Finally, after Abraham was over 100 years old, just for God to make his point that he can do anything, and Sarah was over the age of 90, she gives birth to a son. And it was so obviously a miracle that they named him Isaac, which means laughter, a reference to their joy, but also to their difficulty in believing that this could ever have happened in the first place anyway, right? That's the idea. But all this waiting. So Abraham and Sarah, they've been called to something, but they're also on a journey to realize that something. This is called, Hebrews 11 would call this the journey of faith. Faith is not something that you either have or you don't have. It's something that you have, cultivate, protect, and it starts to grow within your heart through trust and obedience. Okay? But all this waiting for children had created, a, you can imagine, imagine if any, like Nicole and I, we struggled with, ha- with having kids. I mean, we, we had a Noble very, very late in life. And so you can imagine any couple that's struggling with this, when you finally do have a kid, what kind of dynamic does that cause in your heart? I'm never letting you go. I'm never letting you go. I'm never going to let you go. In his, inside Abraham's heart, no man had ever longed for a child more than Abraham. <laughs> no one had ever done that. He had given up everything for all this. And when his son came, perhaps he felt 
that finally his friends and family would stop looking down on him, especially in this kind of a society where having kids was everything. Finally, he could have his reputation back. Finally, he could start creating a dynasty and a legacy for himself. Finally, he could create some security for his family. And on and on. I mean, so much hope was wrapped up in this child. He finally had an heir, someone in his own likeness. The things that all Middle Eastern patriarchs wanted. This is what they wanted. He had waited and sacrificed, and finally his wife had a child, and it was a boy, even a bigger deal in that, in that day and age. But now, of course, the question was, was Abraham following God for God or was he following God to get a kid? It begs the question, is Abraham following God for God's sake alone or for the things or people that God can give him? I think that question rings out to all, every, every man jack of us in this room. Why are we following Jesus? Well, I could go off about that, but I shan't. This is me exercising restraint. Is God just a means to an end? Was Abraham's heart dedicated to God or to what God would give him? Had he learned to trust God and God alone, to love God just for himself, just to love God for God, or for what he could get out of God? Well, not yet. While Abraham is happy, he finally gets what his heart had so deeply desired, but then, to our surprise, Abraham on this journey of faith gets another call from God And it would have been so shocking. Can you now imagine? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. I mean, just put yourself in that guy's sandals for one second. This was the ultimate test. This is it. This is it. The ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham. Notice that God, notice that God doesn't refer to to the boy as Isaac at first, but as he puts it, he makes it clear, your son, your only son, whom you love. That's the point. That's what God's poking at. This is God's way of pointing out that Isaac had become a little too much. Isaac is more than a son. He's the treasure of Abraham's heart at this point. Anybody know, I mean, anybody that's been at this church for more than two Sundays and how much I dote on my boy can understand how this particular passage would reign true for me. I love my kid. I love Noble. Nicole and I, we, yeah, we love him. So this, this, is a, this is a big one for us. Isaac's become the treasure of Abraham's heart. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it became dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was beginning to shift. We're talking about the heart. It was starting to shift a little bit. 
God was not saying, by the way, God was not saying you can't love your son. He's saying you can't turn your love for your son into a God. That's what he's saying. He's, saying, he's not saying don't love your son. He's saying don't make your son an idol. If anyone puts a loved one in the place of the true God, it creates an idolatrous love that will smother the person, by the way, and end up putting strain on that relationship. Idolatry is always destructive. Even when it's towards a good person, it's always destructive. Have you ever been in a smothering relationship with someone before? They feel that they own your time, your attention, or perhaps they get jealous when you're spending time with other people or other, other things. It becomes a smothering situation. Perhaps that person has become too much or you've become too much to that person. Now, to us, now let me, let me get a little technical with you here. To us, this command sounds extremely absurd. Any Westerner that reads this story has some major problems with the story, and I get, I get it. To us Western readers, it might sound like the, uh, the moral of this story is doing violence and hurting people is good as long as you're doing it for God. As long as you're doing it for, as long as it's God's will, you can go ahead and hurt people, innocent people. But we can't understand this unless we understand that the ancient culture in which it was written, this ancient culture was not an individualistic culture. It was a collective culture built on family and community and society. In other words, people's hopes and dreams were never for their own personal prosperity or success. It's hard for us to understand this because this is the, what we breathe in and breathe out. But back then, the, their culture did not say your happiness is based on your own success, prosperity, and prominence. Since everyone was a part of a family, and no one lived a part of, a, a part of, apart from a family, these things were sought for the entire clan, for the entire tribe. We also need to remember that back then, the oldest son got the majority of the, of the estate and wealth when the, uh, when the family would not so, the, so that the family would not lose its place in society. This was really, so having a son meant having security. Having a lot of kids meant um, more money. Okay? So let, let's say Nathan's an electrician. And let's say he has two kids. And let's say Jameson's an electrician, which I think he is. And let's say he has seven kids. In that society, he's going to get more business. Because all of his kids were electricians and they could do the job faster, better, and more efficiently. It was economic security. At the same time, it, they, didn't have, they didn't have things like retirement. So when you got old, your kids took care of you. So the more kids you had, the more secure you were in your inability to do things as you got older. Also on top of that, it was a, having children was a matter of national security. Because the bigger the family, the bigger the clan, the bigger the nation, the more protection, the more you could invade others, the more territories you could take. The more you could protect yourself from invaders and all those types of things. Having kids was a big deal because it wasn't just about you. It was about, it's about others. Um, at my graduation yesterday, we had um, some international students from Africa that were also graduating. And when some students would go up, like me, I had a huge fanfare screaming, woo, yay, Mike, it was awesome. But oh man, when these international kid, guys got up there, 
and they got their degree, they, they, their whole tribe was there. You look back in the back, and there's all these African people waving their flags, and they got bells. They're like, and they're like, they're like, and it's just more communal. It was not just a, a them, it was a we did this. Yay for us. She triumphed, so we triumph type of an idea. That's what's going on here. So a call to give up your firstborn son would be like someone asking a mechanic to give up the use of his, of his right hand. Or to, the, to ask a soloist to give up the use of her voice. It was a big deal. We can only understand God's command to Abraham against this cultural background. That's the only way it's going to work. This is the key to wrapping your mind around this story. In the Bible, have you noticed, God continually asked for the lives of the firstborn sons when sin was found in Israel. Have you noticed that? When sin is found in Israel, they're constantly acting, asking for the life of the firstborn. And the only way that that firstborn could be saved was through a sacrifice, or through service to the tabernacle if, uh, among the Levites, or through some ransom payment, more specifically, that's Numbers chapter 34, a ransom payment in the tabernacle to the priest. For example, when God brought judgment on Egypt for enslaving the Israelites, his ultimate punishment was what? Taking their firstborn son. Why? Because Israel, according to Exodus 4, Israel was God's firstborn son. Did you know that? God said to eat to the Pharaoh, let, Israel, let my people go, they are my firstborn. He's speaking in ancient, God is speaking in ancient language. It means they are my prosperity, they are my legacy, they are everything to me. Let them go. And if you don't, I'm going I'm to require the life of your firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn was the family. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn's life belonged to him unless they were ransomed, he was saying in the most vivid way possible in those cultures that every family on earth owed a debt of eternal justice to God, the debt of sin. So here's what I'm trying to say. Abraham was not confused here. A lot of people say the faith of Abraham was that it was just, what a confusing assignment to go sacrifice your firstborn son. Actually, no. The faith of Abraham was he would have understood that God was requiring payment for his sins and yet he went anyway. In the ancient world, Abraham, when, when God said, take your son, your firstborn son, in the ancient world, Abraham would have heard that and said, oh, he's calling in my debts. I now have to pay for my wrongs. He's calling in my debts. I now have to pay for my sins. I now have to pay for what's wrong because I pay for my sins through my firstborn son. That's what he would have thought of. He was calling in Abraham's debt. In other words, his son was going to die for the sins of Abraham's family. That's how Abraham would have heard this. It would have made sense to him. It would not have been weird. He would have known what was going on. Abraham was facing the ultimate philosophical problem. God is holy. Our sin means that Isaac's faith is forfeit. But God is also a God of grace. 
And he wants to bless the world through Isaac. How can God be both holy and gracious at the same time? That is what Abraham is facing here. Abraham did not know the answer to this, but he still went. And that is the faith of Abraham. He did not know the answer, and he still did it anyway. As I put myself in his sandals, I have to ask, how did he get himself up that mountain? How did he do it? Well, there's a few hints. He told his servants, as you, and I know you guys heard this, we will come back to you. We will come back to you. He went up that mountain believing that God would somehow remove the debt of the firstborn and still keep his promise of being gracious. He didn't know how, but he knew somehow it would happen that way. He knew God would do this, but he didn't know how. And my point is, please understand, the faith of Abraham is not blind faith. In fact, it's, it's something much more complex Abraham is not saying, this is nuts, this is murder. He's asking me to murder someone innocent. Well, I'll just do it anyway. That's not what's going on. He's saying, oh, my debts are being called in. Yes, he knew, well, I, yes, he knew he could. I don't know if that was particularly in his mind, but he knew that God would do something, something. See, if he had not believed that he was in debt to a holy God, he would have been too angry to go. Think about that. It's a balance here. If he had not believed that he had been in debt to an angry God, he'd be, he'd be angry. You're asking me to pay something that I don't... That, everyone's angry, right? When, we, when someone asks us to pay something that we, that we didn't order, right? When we look at the bill and something's on there that we didn't, that we didn't eat... I'm not gonna, you know, the bill's 50 bucks, it should be 30 bucks, that's not how it's gonna, this is, that, that, on a cosmic level, you're asking me to pay for my son, I didn't do anything wrong. No, he knows he's in debt to God. It was only because he knew God was both holy and loving that he was able to put one foot in front of the other. Finally, Abraham and his son can see the place where the sacrifice had to be made. Let me read verse 9 to you. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel called, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. What is this story about? Two things, two things. One, that Abraham probably saw, one thing that Abraham probably saw fairly well and one thing that Abraham did not, could not have known but that we get the privilege of knowing. What Abraham was able to see was that this test was about loving God supremely. He would have known that. In the end, the Lord said to him, now I know that you fear God. In the Bible, this does not refer to being afraid necessarily. It means wholehearted devotion to God. You've, in other words, Abraham, you've truly given me a blank check. You've held nothing back. On your journey of faith, this is it. You, you did it. For example, Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, fear God the fear of God is increased by an experience of God's grace and forgiveness. What it's describing is a loving, joyful awe and wonder that says, I trust you so completely, I'll give you everything, even when it doesn't make sense. 
The Lord is saying to Abraham, now I know that you love me more than anything else in the world, Abraham. And that's what makes, that's what makes Abraham's faith so great. That's what makes it so great. It's not saying that God was trying to find out if Abraham, if Abraham did love him. He knew that, right? God knows the state of every single person's heart. No, God was purging Abraham's heart from the, a lesser love. He was refining it. He was purging it from a lesser love so Abraham's love could, could truly be full. Michael, were you going to say something? And what does it say? Read it. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for that. So, yes, good job, Renee. Abraham, so God, uh, or Hebrews tells us that Abraham did have an inkling that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Yes, well done. Absolutely. That's awesome. God is refining the heart. He's saying, look, I'm not trying to find out if you love me. I'm trying to refine that love. It's not hard to see God, why God would use Isaac as the means to do this. If God not, had not intervened, think about this, these things. If God had not intervened, Abraham would have certainly come to love his son more than anything in the world if he hadn't already. And that would have been idolatry. And all idolatry is destructive. God is saving Abraham from the poison that would get into his heart. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham. All of our children are wonderful gifts. There's a lot of wonderful gifts, but he was not, Isaac was not saved to ha, safe to have and to hold until Abraham was willing to put God first. The deeper issue of the heart really depended on how Isaac was going to be treated. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. We get checks like this all the time as parents, don't we? We find out when we send our kids off alone on a new venture and we think all oh, the things that could happen to them. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Abraham moment. We get to trust afresh and anew. We get to check our hearts, that uncomfortable feeling. Or we find out that they ate something that they shouldn't have eaten. Or they find out or something. We, we, have a, we have a moment to go, okay, that's right. He's yours, or that thing is yours, or that person is yours, or this marriage is yours, or my career is yours, whatever it is. We don't know their idols until they're shaken a little bit. Abraham took that journey up the mountain, and only after that could, Abraham's, could Abraham really love Isaac well. Abraham's agonizing walk into the mountain was therefore the final stage of a long journey in which Abraham was turning into it from an average guy into a great man of faith. This is why he's one of the greats. Three, the, three, the three great monotheistic religions today ascribe to Abraham as, as, their, as uh, one of their patriarchs. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all name Abraham as their founder because of this, this because of this. Over half the people in the human race consider Abraham one of their spiritual fathers today. Think of that. It's phenomenal. But this story is also about something that Abraham could not have seen. Why had Isaac not been sacrificed? Why not? 
the sins of Abraham and his family were still there. How could a holy and just God overlook those sins? Well, you might say, well, a sacrifice was offered, a ram. But even as you're reading the Old Testament, what do you feel? When you read through Leviticus, do you feel like, could could a sacrifice really, could the blood of a lamb or a goat or a bull actually forgive sins? It seems insufficient, doesn't it? Even when you read it, it's because it is. It's because it is. This points many, many years later in these same mountains, another firstborn was stretched out on wood to die. But there on Calvary, on Mount Calvary, when the beloved son of God, God's son, his only son, the beloved son of God, cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was no voice from heaven announcing his deliverance. No angel stopped it. God actually went through with it. Instead, God the Father paid the price in silence. Why? Because the substitute for Abraham's son was God's only son, Jesus, who died to bear the punishment for all of us. Listen to this beautiful verse in Peter. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. If you want to know why Jesus died, it was to bring us to God. Notice he doesn't say to forgive your sins. No, it was to forgive your sins so that you can come to God. It's not forgive your sins so you can live a life without even thinking about God. I'm a Christian, and so my sins are forgiven. And so like I, you know, I'm a Christian like I'm an American, so my sins are forgiven, and I can live a whole life without even having a thought about God or being devoted to him at all because my sins are forgiven because I accepted this thing and I'm going to go there when I die. No, look it. It's to bring us to God, a relationship with God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Here then is the practical answer to our own idolatries, to the Isaacs in all of our lives which are not spiritually safe to have and hold yet because they're, they're, they're warping you, they're twisting you. We need to offer them up. We need to offer them up. We need to find a way to keep from clutching them too tightly, to being enslaved to them. We need to know, to be assured that God so loves and cherishes and delights in us that we can rest our hearts in him for our security, for our significance, for our identity, and handle anything that happens in life. But how? How do we do it? Well, God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, did you notice this? This is, God saw Abraham's sacrifice and what did he say? Now I know. Now I know that you love me above anything else. Jesus, the son, look, look. God's beloved son died on the cross for you so that now you can say, now I know. Now I know that you love me the way you, now I know that you love me eternally. Now I know that you'll be with me forever. Now I know I've got nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. What about Christmas? Is that Corinthians 5.21? What's it say? Oh, 
he, he, yes, yes, so that we could be the ch- ch- that we'd be called the righteousness of God. Yes, absolutely. She's referring to 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says he became sin who knew no sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God. Absolutely. The only way we can do this, you guys, is if we say, if we stop doubting the love of God, this is where we curate our hearts. The biggest lie against your heart is that you cannot be loved. You are a little bit unlovable. How do we... see that we are loved when we see his sacrifice for us we can say now I know and now I will never doubt again your love for me that's right he we are loved and that is the key to the heart do you know that your love to your core to the part where it's just natural to know that you're loved by God in that natural way you can say yes but your actions will show and my actions show. And that's not a way of shaming you. It's a way of revealing. It's a way of revealing. So that when I, this is the whole idea in, in, in Revelation of casting crowns down. It's a right priority. We cast our crowns down in a sense even now. When I, when I get the robe for the degree, in my mind I'm going, Jesus, this is not about me, this is about you. I was on the stage, I was kneeling, they put the thing on me, and, and over and over again in my head, this is what I was doing. This is not about me. This is about you. This is not about me. This is about you. What was I doing? I was curating my heart. I was saying, no, this does not define me. The love of Jesus defines me. That's what this is. Jesus loves me, whether my son turns out to be who I want him to or not, whether he follows Jesus or not, whether the worst happens or not, Jesus loves me, I stand on that. And to the degree that we can curate our hearts in that truth, to that degree, we can handle anything. We'll become people of greatness like Abraham. We'll go, we're on a journey from going to, from average people of faith to, to great, to greatness. We give him, we give it over, give him. This is an ongoing thing. It's a journey. Amen.